0: My job is to bring visibility to tech in rural places and people engaged in or trying to engage in tech and entrepreneurship in rural places because it's overlooked, misunderstood, not realized. I think anytime we can tell a story that opens someone's eyes to that possibility, that potential either for themselves, someone they know. the community they know, an organization they know, that's where it has the potential to be really powerful.
1: Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker. Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. In today's episode, we're headed to Vermont to hear stories about extraordinary rural communities throughout the U.S. I want you all to meet Austin Danforth, who's the chief storyteller in charge at the Center on Rural Innovation. He wouldn't call himself that, but I definitely do. Austin is a recovering sports reporter and photographer who is now putting his talent to use to shape the narrative around tech ecosystems, innovation and entrepreneurship in rural America. Besides an incredible video series called The Rural Edge, Austin and his team also produce community case studies, reports, and tools that I have found super useful in helping me develop the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in the Shenandoah Valley. So naturally, I had to have this storyteller on the show to spill the beans about how they do what they do and how they do it so well. Let's head upstate to Vermont and meet Austin. Austin Danforth. Thank you so much for making the time and coming on my show.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: Fantastic. Austin, if I were to come to your community for the first time, where would you take me to make sure that I got a an impression a la Austin when I come and see you?
0: Gosh, okay. So the uh, the, the funny thing about my ecosystem where I live is it's sort of, it's a bi-state place. It's... Oh. Um, It straddles the border with Vermont and New Hampshire, and it's uh, on the Connecticut River, an area that sort of self-referentially calls itself the Upper Valley. And I couldn't tell you where the Lower Valley is or if there's a (laughs) Mid-Valley. That's never been super clear for me, but uh, I knew it as the Upper Valley before I moved here. And I think it's pretty bustling and interesting to be at the confluence of two states and two interstates. So there's... For a place that doesn't have a ton of people, it feels like there's a lot going on. Um, if you want to get a sense of, you know, Ivy League academia, we could go to Hanover, which is, you know, six seven minutes from my house. Uh, that's the where Dartmouth College is located. Uh, there's a lot of history there. But where I am, I'm right in the hub. I'm in White River Junction, uh, in Vermont, and I think the cool thing about Vermont in general, but this area in particular, is that I think you, you get to find the really good stuff when you start looking where you don't expect it. So White River Junction, it's an old railroad town. There's still the largest or busiest uh, rail yard in the state of Vermont right here. So from my house, you can hear trains banging and like the, the brakes going at all hours and the the horns when they come through on the Amtrak. And so that's one thing that really animates sort of the the soundscape. But you could go over towards the Amtrak station, and we could get uh, a cup of coffee there. We could go at lunchtime or dinnertime and get really, really great Turkish kebabs. Um, If you're into tacos, I'd take you to my taco place over in Lebanon, which is just across the river in New Hampshire. Um, And if it's not a Monday or a Tuesday, I'd take you potentially to this really awesome community-supported market, deli, restaurant in a town called Brownsville, which is about 25 minutes away, which might seem like a lot. Uh, but it's it's a really special place where there's a younger couple that has built this business with the support of the community there. And they have the most excellent uh, cafe and deli counter and butcher shop. And they have a really great wine selection and beer. So basically everything you'd want you could get there. And on the way you get to see the rolling hills and and streams of Vermont and, you know, the pastures and forests and uh, you'd get everything all in one. So it'd be a great sort of hour to 90 minute, you know, road trip out into the country a little bit and then come away with a full belly and a, a happy, uh, happy belly.
1: See, so when you came to Stanton, I was like, oh, you should come to the Shenandoah Valley. It's so pretty here. But now that I hear your description, I begrudgingly have to admit that where you live is probably a good comparison in terms of pretty and in terms of having great community great food and great drink
0: yeah yeah i i, I quite like it here
1: Austin, let's start with a story in a few sentences can you tell us one of your favorite stories about an initiative a community or a change maker
0: yeah i think what comes to mind first for me um in my work with the center on rural innovation is something i wrote last year about a program called the youth coding league and this is a a program that started in cape Girardeau, missouri innovation hub there uh, called codify came up with this idea that basically for you know kids between grades say five and eight gives them a way to become exposed to coding and problem solving and tech skills in a competitive environment. So it sort of takes like the youth sports model and then applies that to, to coding. And the story I wrote last year was, was sort of centered on this team from Scott County Central School, which is a tiny school about, I think it was about a half hour South of Cape Girardeau. And they were an early adopter of this program and it's a school that only offers, you know, three or four sports for the whole year, which myself as a former sports writer, didn't really make sense. It's like, how, how did they not have three or four sports in every season? And that gets a whole dip goes into a whole different thing about education and funding and that, that we'll leave that for a different day. But basically the, one of the teachers there recognized that this would be a really unique opportunity for kids. And the story I wrote centered on these three girls from this team at Scott County, uh, central school. And it was an all girls team and they won a lot, like they'd won several times in a few years with the same core group of girls. And it was a really cool story about, you know, the, the idea that tech is for boys and girls, it's for everyone. It's not just, you know, the, the stereotypical male dominated culture. It doesn't have to be. And it's a source of not just empowerment for these, these girls that May not have had as many positive outlets um, in in the place where they live. Um, it you know was a a means for them to win prizes. They won tablets, laptops, money uh, because of this program, and it gave them a sense of pride and and exposed them to new possibilities for their future. And it all came out of this one place in southeastern Missouri. That now the program has has gone to I think it's between eight and ten states. More than eighty schools, hundreds of kids. Uh, it's it's really something special that I think is growing and and a good thing for for kids in rural places. Uh, not not even rural places, but it started in a rural place, which I think is is the cool thing about it.
1: It is so cool because I had the pleasure of visiting with Corey in Cape Girardeau and seeing for myself what that community is about, and to know that something so, I don't want to say transformative, but something so needed and so valuable comes out of Cape Girardeau is, is really fantastic. And thank you f- to you, Austin, for writing that down and sharing that story with us and it, uh, sharing it on your channels with Corey. When it comes to these types of stories, the stories you develop for the Center on Rural Innovation, what is the focus? What, do you, what kinds of stories do you tell? What kind of narrative do you develop? How does that all fit in? Can you tell us a little bit more?
0: Sure our approach at, at Corey, um, you know, goes in a couple different media. And the focus for me specifically has been on written and visual storytelling. So I, a lot of my work has involved going to a community, meeting folks, you know, photographing them in their element, getting a sense of the place, and how these folks fit into a place and and interviewing them, getting to know them there, but also employing technology, you know, Zoom conversations to be able to do stuff, you know, from afar remotely efficiently as well. Um, But we also have engaged over the years in a pretty substantial visual storytelling effort, you know, video storytelling on YouTube, where we work with a external partner who helps us film these these case studies in, in different communities around the country. And the focus for us, it goes right to our mission, and it's it's we're focused on you know tech-based economic development, innovation in rural places based on on and in technology and and how folks in different very different rural communities are doing some similar things but also unique things to bolster you know tech opportunities, tech jobs, tech startups uh, in their own backyard.
1: I got to say when I've followed Corey for a very long time. I think the work you all are doing is absolutely amazing. And I will admit, I sometimes to this day watch the videos, the Rural Edge video series, because it reminds me of why we do this work. It reminds me of what all is out there. I think as ecosystem builders, it's really hard to get bogged down on the hard days. But then watching a a very well-produced video that really gets to the heart of the matter and introduces you to the people who are doing this work in just other places around the U.S., day in and day out. It helps. It really helps. And I hope that the communities and everybody who's listening here feel the same way when they first watch them. I want to get a little bit more detailed here, Austin. How do you tell a story? What does that process look like? You said you used to be in sports reporting. Are you a trained, educated Like, did you go to school for journalism or what is your background?
0: So I went to school at the University of Vermont and I was a history major because the university didn't have a journalism program, but I I knew I wanted to do journalism afterwards. So I was involved in the school paper there uh, basically all four years. I ran the paper my last two years um, and did a lot of my journalism training by doing um, and augmenting that with certain english and expository writing courses and history was actually a really effective means of you know building in good uh good habits good good tools to to do research and be thorough and and grounded in what you're you're doing and apply context and perspective so that was sort of my my pre-professional training and then Yeah, I was a journalist for, uh, oh gosh, it was a little over 12 years, 12, 13 years, not counting that time in in college. Um, And so that's sort of, that's where my sense of story and I honed my process that I've since continued to apply with Corey. I I would say it's probably unique to me, but there might be elements that other folks do and engage in, but for myself, how I go about telling a story is, I take what I know, and and th- try to think with it, sit with it. I take input from others and and, you know, everything kind of informs your sense of what is a story. So that when the time comes, you are able to really drill down in what about this narrative? What about what's in front of me? would or could resonate with folks what resonates with me how can i get that to resonate with folks there's there's so much you can think about that i just try the absolute best i can to uncover and take stock of the pieces of the story and how they fit together and when you know all of my spidey senses are are really going off like oh gosh this is good stuff this is really good stuff then it's just on me to get get myself out of the way. And let myself be the vessel for the story, not insert myself into it, not, um, not try to screw it up. In the past, I've talked about like, the idea, like, sort of analogizing it to, to any other sort of art form, like when you are reporting a story, working on a story, and you have really good material, I think of like, Oh, this is good clay, you can make something really form something really meaningful out of this. And you think about the audience and like, as you're writing it, I I think about the audience as I write and as I process the story, just like in the sense of is this accessible? Like, is that is this something folks can connect with? Am I doing laying the breadcrumbs so they can follow what I'm talking about? Am I using too much jargon for for everyone? Am I using just enough to signal to the folks that really know this material that I know it? Uh, it's it's a fine line and it's collaborative so that when you work with someone who edits your stuff or, you know, reviews it, they you can sort of remove yourself and your ego and sort of hear what they're saying and then try to apply that.
1: Austin, when you write a story, what leads? Is it the research first or is it... You follow your hunch, you follow that little, that little tingle that makes you care. How do you, what comes first or is it different with each story?
0: I think it's different with each one. I mean, sometimes that tingling thing, that kernel that you're starting with comes from you. Sometimes it comes from someone else who shares it with you. And then that's when I sort of start doing my research and familiarizing myself with the topic or the person or the place, uh, just so I'm more grounded and knowledgeable and I can meet whoever I'm talking to more where they are rather than where I am trying to do a lot of that legwork so that the conversation is, is more natural and flowing and less intensive on the the other person I want to be able to put them at ease because that's when I get the material that really usually is the stuff that sings and I think connects with folks because when there's that sort of, I'd say sort of structural barrier that just that, that barrier between having a conversation and having an interview. And I I try to lean towards more of the, the conversational aspect of it.
1: When you write stories, especially the stories for Corey, obviously, they feed towards a greater vision of, of the world that Corey wants to create. So, when you tell these stories, do you have the end in mind? Do you know when you go into the story, oh, this is the kind of message that I want to tell with this story, and then sort of reverse engineer, or does the end surprise you sometimes? How do you think about being intentional with the story you tell and how you tell that story?
0: Yeah, and that's the—I think that's the difference for me from my journalism days to to now now i am thinking about that end goal and generally with our work at Corey, i feel like my job is to bring visibility to tech in rural places and people engaged in or trying to engage in tech and entrepreneurship in rural places because it's overlooked misunderstood not realized however you want to think about it there is a real disconnect between the existence and reality of it and people's perception of it and i think anytime we can tell a story that opens someone's eyes to that possibility that potential either for themselves someone they know the community they know an organization they know i think that's the powerful thing when they could see something of themselves or their community in a story that we do that's based on a different individual a different community that's where that's where it has the potential to be really powerful and that wasn't always the case in in journalism when it was more driven by myself and the the publication i worked for and and just my sense of story and where i wanted to take it so
1: i do think journalism has a slightly different function in terms of relaying facts and objective reporting, which like, let's be real, even storytelling needs to be grounded in facts. It needs to be somewhat objective, but I do think they serve very different purposes in public life. Austin, how do you make sure that these stories get in front of the people that you want to absorb these stories? How do you do that?
0: That involves a process that I've learned more of since joining Corey and we've started to really refine how we do it but it involves really maximizing your network and maximizing the partners you work with on certain stories which in in the work we do with corey we're in a dialogue with you know folks in a specific community to identify people to feature to identify organizations to talk to. And so all of these people that are involved in the process, they can become partners in amplifying the message. They can help make those connections with either local or regional publications that might be interested in picking up something about that story. Or, you know, even just abstractly getting it in front of that publication so that down the road, when they're thinking about their own sort of story, that might be something they they refer back to. Um, and that's that's a, a long game you're trying to play that might never pay off, and you have to be comfortable with that. But you just have to be committed to that process of engaging people to be committed in their outreach and sharing because the as those stories ripple out, that's that's how you get in front of people and and get people coming back to what you do. What you've written, what you've produced.
1: I agree. I think one thing that Corey does really, really well is that the quality of your content is top notch. I mean, it really is something that people do want to share, not just because it, you know, you said something nice about them, but because it looks so absolutely appealing that I think it really feeds that the topophilia that pride of place of, hey, look, this is what our community looks like if someone just takes enough time to talk to us and to bring a nice camera and to put the pieces together into a coherent story that looks good, that sounds good, that that is a a beautiful representation of who we are as a community. And I think that is so, so, so important if you really want people to share that story and amplify is give them stuff that they're really proud of and that they themselves love. And it's built in. They will want to share it because it's it's beautiful and it's meaningful to them. So I think you guys have really unlocked that. And that really comes down to, you know, you if you put the resources in, if you invest into creating a beautiful and solid product, it's a lot more likely that people will share it out and you get that return on investment in the widest sense.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Like that's that's really meaningful to hear and that I mean that is kind of the goal like we want to be a accurate and positive reflection of the people in rural America that are trying to do these big hard things and happen to be doing these things in places that most people don't know about that I am generally unfamiliar with until I get to go go to these places or get to know these places. And I think when you get to uncover something that a lot of people don't know, you get to, you get the benefit of the doubt and sort of, you know, being first on the scene and, and getting to share something. And if you do it right, then yeah, hopefully people do feel, uh, feel good about it.
1: That's why I'm, and you and I have had this conversation before, but that's why I'm so baffled that not more of the really big news outlets aren't jumping on so many of the stories, quite frankly, that you're telling, that we're telling at SCCF that really so many storytellers in this season are sharing because is it really interesting to write about yet another tech startup somewhere in New York City whereas you could be uncovering stories from all the nooks and crannies of rural America where Mm. really cool stuff is happening? I don't know. I, I still need to figure out how to build that bridge and make sure that these stories are amplified with a megaphone across the united states
0: and that's that's a macro thing that we can speculate about you and i and and maybe scratch the surface but there's so many forces at play in that in that equation that it it, sometimes it just takes getting lucky i think really like there's just so many dynamics and sometimes conflicting dynamics that it's hard for even some of the best stories to get told and get attention.
1: So to all the reporters and journalists listening to this podcast, if you work for The Washington Post, Entrepreneur, Inc. Magazine, whatever else is out there, and you want the scoop on really cool stories, just just hit up Austin and me and we'll set you up yeah. for the next, what, we have material for about 18 months, two years?
0: Oh gosh, longer. We can, we keep, uh, as, as, as just keep keep coming back to us. We got it.
1: Hey, I don't want to distract you from this awesome conversation, but I do want to let you know that I curate a fortnightly newsletter with resources, events, and behind-the-scenes insights into the show. I would love to pop into your inbox every two weeks to hand-deliver those goodies. Sign up through the link in the show notes. And now, back to the show. I want to circle back on what we talked about just a few minutes ago in terms of really making the investment to create something meaningful. Let's talk about that investment. To do it well, you want everyone along this value chain of of telling the stories and producing the content to get paid fairly. Where does that money come from at Corey? Knowing that you guys don't drive around in flashy Ferraris yet, where does that fall in your budget, and how do you make that work financially?
0: Yeah, so the the funding for us as a nonprofit, uh, Corey is a nonprofit it's, it's philanthropy and it takes some pretty large scale philanthropy, unrestricted funding to be, or if someone wanted to specifically fund this work, they certainly could, but it, it takes a big chunk of like the storytelling for us in our communications budget is it's the biggest non-personnel expense. And when you then layer in personnel, that's, that's kind of the whole game. Um, it's pretty fair to say that video is more expensive than, than written and, and photography, uh, based content. And that's because we have found a really, like we've found good partners to work with who, you know, they deliver a product that, that merits that, and, you know, when we do videos, you know, that's a five figure expense pretty, pretty quickly, pretty easily um for even if you're just talking a you know five to ten minute video because there's a lot of people a lot of man hours that go into making a really good seven or eight minute video when you talk about you know some of our written and uh photography based storytelling work that is also like that that's a a factor or two less and so when you try combine travel with time, et cetera, that's generally four figures for a certain, depending on where the travel takes you and how long you're there. Um, it's, it's in that ballpark, but we, as I am sort of a one man operation, which is what I was in a lot of ways in journalism. And I think part of why I was someone Corey wanted to hire, I can go in someplace with the camera and do the photography and the, the reporting and, and that that saves, that saves some money there. It's uh, kind of the forever struggle, making sure that the funding matches the demand, matches the desire um, to, to get, get it done.
1: For those listening who don't know this, and I just learned this since I started with SCCF as a nonprofit, is obviously most funders want to see their money go directly into programs, go as little as possible towards overhead, and heaven forbid go to unrestricted funding. So unrestricted funding is the money that is not pre-committed to a certain program or expense, but that's really the money or the the budget item that we use to do the things that don't fit into any of the other programmatic buckets. So I just want to explain that to our listeners, that oh, we can't just millivinilly spend the money however we feel like we are always beholden to those who make grants and make donations to show where that money is being put to good use. Austin, do you know why Corey even made it part of the budget to make sure that there is enough capital to support the storytelling efforts?
0: I can give you the, my best sense of how that came to be before I joined the organization. And for me, I think the, the long and short of it is, you know there's a narrative about rural America that needs to change for people to see rural America as a place of opportunity, as a place of tech-based opportunity where tech can happen. And you know, part of that has already been changing just the last couple of years, as the focus has been on building out broadband, effective, good quality broadband in places that haven't had it or have been underserved. Um, and that's that's one, you know box that we're we've been working towards checking off and and you know that once places have that infrastructure then they can start doing some really cool things and in our role with corey we've made a point of trying to show the places that have that infrastructure the cool things that they're they're doing that they've done that they're planning to do because that can be a a lens for other similar places to think hey yeah we can do that or gosh that sounds really great or boy we like our community's been rocked by you know large-scale manufacturing with pulling out of the community or you know pick pick your your effect or your cause there needs to be something there to replace that and that's where um, we're trying to show that there is a way to do that in rural america that takes you know foresight from the leaders of the the, the organization, our executive director, uh, founder Matt Dunn. He's, you know, he put, He's a big believer in in the power of storytelling, and the reason we have some of that funding to be able to do that is we've we've managed to find funding partners who believe in that as well, and and recognize that uh, that has to happen for change to happen.
1: Absolutely, I think if you're committed to narrative change, it needs to be in the budget. So you can be intentional about telling the right kind of stories that support that larger narrative that you're trying to bring across. Austin, you've been a journalist. You now are more so doing storytelling. Are there any trends that you've observed over the last years? Is there anything you're excited about? Is there anything you're worried about as you look towards the future of these storytelling efforts?
0: I I could say very off the top, like the the development of AI is uh, potential fear. There's so much yet to be determined there that you you're. It's more of a fear of the unknown of the potential. Um, but I can just leave that, park that there, and and try not to dwell on that too much. Uh, I'd say trend-wise, I, I was kind of hinting at it earlier, where I feel like in journalism and beyond, there is this sort of dichotomy where folks are either focusing on engagement or audience. And the idea that, you know, if you're trying to reach the broadest number of people, the greatest audience, you might not be able to engage them as deeply. The flip side being, if you are thinking about engaging a specific community, you are probably limiting your audience and turning people away. And and I think that or if you're not turning them away, you're making that that storytelling that that work less accessible. I feel like the trend and and I don't know that there's a perfect answer for it, but you're trying to, to walk that tightrope between finding stories that appeal to the most number of people, the greatest number of people possible, but telling them in a way that can engage everyone, uh, or as many of those people as possible. And sometimes you do it better than others. But um, I I, I even recognize it in the the media I consume, where conceivably, I should be very interested in this long form story about A, B, or C. And then I get into it. And I'm like, you know what, you don't have me, because you're you're trying to go too deep on something that might not merit it or just doesn't have my full attention right now. And that's okay. But um, I'd say it's that for me, that trend that I'm watching is like sort of how are outlets and storytellers walking that line between audience and engagement. And when they find that sort of magic place in between the two, those are, I think, the the places I end up spending my own time. And so I try to learn from what I'm, you know, consuming there.
1: You, you're blowing my mind a little bit. I'm going... I'm going in so many directions with my follow-up question because you just put a name to something that I, I think I have felt for a while, but I didn't have the words to describe of what was going on. That's really, I'm going to have to think on that a little bit more. Thank you. Uh, one thing that really jumped out at me was when you talk about audience reach and engagement, what kind of metrics do you put around your stories? Or do you say, look, we're just going to put out the best possible thing and, and just help people see it? How do you think about measuring that return on that investment?
0: Yeah, I think we, it. so that's been a different thing for me when, in my transition from journalism to working for a nonprofit is that that audience is smaller. So your sense of perspective and, and context has to change. And so as you're building out that that practice, that content creation practice, it's doing the best work you can, being strategic. Uh, about what you're doing. And as you put forth that effort and thought, comparing to what you've done before, and hopefully, all those metrics are growing, because you're you're doing those things in the way that you, you think makes sense. Specific metrics, I think the best thing you can see is people spending a lot of time on a piece of content or on your site. I mean, you might if you if you're not getting massive views, you want people to be really engaged. Or if something is getting a lot of attention. And it's got a little less engagement. That's cool. But like you're there's a general threshold where it's based on your site based on what you produce, that you should be able to tell Oh, that got more than we thought it would or that didn't get as much as we hoped it would or wow, we really blew it out of the park with that one. And there might be something there we want to come back to.
1: Can you measure narrative change?
0: Gosh, that's <laughs> now, because now I you're... don't
1: know, but I thought maybe you do.
0: <laughs> no, you're you're hitting me with uh, with something and that's like when we go through our organizational like goal setting. It's like how do we measure that? And I think at one point we tried to achieve x number of, you know, national media placements or regional media placements or pickups or those are really hard because so much is out of your control all those macro forces we talked about earlier are really you know you you can hope you're in the right place at the right time and you can try to open those doors and sometimes they just don't want to open so i really i think it's probably i i have yet to find a way that isn't more anecdotal than quantitative and i think for our organization, for Corey, it's. I I feel like the way that we are brought into conversations, the number of conversations we're brought into, is probably a better metric of how well we're doing, making ourselves a part of this narrative and being messengers of that narrative, that we can become a resource for folks uh, interested in you know tech in rural places.
1: What piece of advice do you have for someone who's just starting out with storytelling if we haven't scared everyone off completely by now <laughs> How does someone who loves their community with a passion start telling that story in an intentional way
0: Jeez that's I'd say I think it's it's trying to zoom out so that like when you're like when you're in the work it's really probably challenging to figure out what is the thing that's going to resonate with someone else outside of this work. And so I think you have to start by zooming out, or getting the feedback of someone outside of the organization who you trust and um, whose, whose judgment you you put a lot of stock in. And then you put in the effort to figure out, okay, so how do we center this story in a way that will connect with people? Is there some person with a story at the heart of it that really is resonant? Is there some statistic or piece of fact that will resonate with people? And then you build from there. Um, And you have to start with those, whatever it is that you choose to be that sort of anchoring thing, start with that up top, and then work your way out from that most important thing to the least I mean, that, that, then we get into like the inverted pyramid thing, which uh, you can either put stock in or not. But um, I think you have to get to a place where you can identify that, the, that kernel that you want to build from and then do the work.
1: And then practice, 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 practice.
0: Yep, because about 10 or 12, you know, examples down the road, you're going to be like, wow, I did really well with something that probably wasn't, as meaningful as, say, example one, two, or three. And maybe you get the luxury of going back to revisit one of those earlier you know, efforts. Um, and you'll probably be disappointed at the job you did with one of those earlier efforts. But you have to take it all as a learning experience and, and keep approaching the work.
1: I agree. I heard somewhere um, someone say that she wanted to write a New York Times bestselling book at some point. And she knew that meant writing three mediocre books first and then maybe even four or five until she got to that New York Times bestseller. And I was like, oh, I think that's a very healthy attitude. If you want to write a great story one day, start today so that you can just start, get the practice and the reps in so that one day you can write that really fantastic story. And it doesn't feel like ripping your heart out and putting it in the blender and just leaving it all on the field. Sorry, that's my, that's my writing uh, process. So there you go. Austin, um, before we move on to the rapid fire round, I just want to let the audience know that they can find a lot of the things that we just talked about on Corey's website, which is ruralinnovation.us. You can connect with Austin Danforth on LinkedIn. You can also find him on Twitter under EA Danforth and I will put all the links to these resources into the show notes so that as you're listening, you can just follow along and go down all these beautiful rabbit holes. All right, Austin, I am going to start a sentence or ask you a question, and I would love for you to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Ready? Yep. Storytelling is? Human. A storyteller everyone should know about is?
0: I think you have to find someone who tells stories that resonate with you and then build out from them. I, 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 could, I mean, I could, I, I still consume a lot of, uh, you know, sports-based content because I find a lot of the humanity there. And like, you can, you can identify like there's really incredible writing. I mean, I could throw out a couple folks that from that line of work that really go beyond sports a lot, a lot of ways. And one would be a guy by the name of Wright Thompson. And then another one, former uh, Sports Illustrated writer named Tim Layden. Um, they're two of my favorites whose voices I just, I, I adore. I adore the way they tell stories and they don't do, you know, ecosystem based work like, like we're talking about here. But I just, I love their voices and the way that they approach talking about people and, you know, the world around them.
1: lastly, what is one resource that influenced you that you would recommend to other storytellers?
0: I think if you're working on, you know, anything like the work we've talked about that I'm engaged with at Corey or you're engaged with at SCCF, I would go to the Rural Innovation YouTube page and watch the Rural Edge videos.
1: 100%.
0: When I was making my lane change career-wise into this you know, this work that I do now, the first three installments really visualized and grounded all of these things that we're talking about, or when people are talking about economic development or tech-based economic development, they seem like such, you know, inside terms that are hard to, you know, really understand and grasp. And I think we've done a really laudable job with these videos. There's now 10 of them explaining, you know, the who what why how where all those things and putting faces to it and hearing people's stories and i think that's a really useful tool for understanding that work
1: absolutely austin thank you so much for making the time to talk to me on a friday sharing your perspective on storytelling and narrative change i i'm so excited you were able to join us thank you for sharing
0: i'm so happy to join it's been a pleasure
1: Learn more about Austin's work at ruralinnovation.us and connect with him on LinkedIn and on Twitter as E.A. Danforth. All the links are in the show notes. A heartfelt thank you to my partners at Ecomap Technologies for making this season possible. Head over to ecomap.tech to learn more about how they use modern technology to make ecosystem information more accessible. I pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live the Monacan, Shawanda-Satula, and Monahawk people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.